Good evening. I, it's a pleasure to be here tonight. I, I want to say before we begin just how uh, thankful I am each time we've been here, whether it's just been me, whether it's been me and two of my kids, or whether it's me and my whole family, y'all have been so inviting. Um, I don't think there's enough trips to fill up the amount of uh, invitations that we've had to stay at people's homes. Um, and I just want to say that just about everyone I, I talk to, um, when, when I mention that I'm moving to Alabama, they ask, well, you know, where? Birmingham. They ask, well, what congregation are you going to be working with? And I mentioned Oak Mountain. And the, the amount of praise that is given to this church has been, well, a little intimidating, if I, might, if I, if I can be honest. Um, because what y'all have here, and what I've been experiencing in the time that I've been here, and what I look forward to experiencing uh, in the coming month, you, you have something really good. You have, you have something that people from other places have been talking about. And not in, in a matter of flattery or anything like that, but in a matter of lifting you all up in, in, in the faith that you have put on display for the city of Birmingham. And so, as I come here to work with you all, and that's what I hope it is, it is us working together. When I come to work with you all, I really don't want to get in the way of what you all already have going. Uh, I, I, I take on this role... Uh, Praying for more wisdom and, and, un, and, and more understanding of the responsibility that comes with it. Um, because what y'all have been doing, what Bob uh, ha, has been doing as an evangelist, what the elders have established, what y'all have done so well from what I've been hearing and what I've been experiencing, I don't want to get in the way of. And so I, I ask that you continue to pray for me and my family, as I know you have been. Uh, and I ask that you, you, you please have us on your thoughts and your minds and on your lips as you lift it up to God as we try and get this house situation figured out too. Uh, Lord willing, that'll be, that'll be taken care of one way or the other. Hey, after all, y'all have already said we can stay with you, so maybe we'll just be staying with you from here on out. Um, I just want to say thank you as that, as that day approaches. Um, go ahead and open up to 1 Samuel chapter 21. We're going to get there in just a minute. But I actually want to start by talking about uh, the book of 1 Peter. Um, 1 Peter, kind of in a roundabout way, gets you to 1 Samuel 21. Uh, but in 1 Peter, Peter is addressing uh, his audience and trying to get them to see themselves as, as aliens, as these foreigners, these sojourners uh, in the land. He wants, kind of wants his audience to think of themselves as, as immigrants to some degree. People who are different from the world that's around them. People who are tightly knit. People who are working. But really, they're looking forward to going back home. People who don't assimilate to the culture that's around them, uh, but they keep their behavior like that of their, their true home. He's calling them to be people who, despite the very difficult situation that, the, that they are in, this, this severe persecution, to rise above those difficulties in a godly manner. And he, and he makes this argument in a lot of different ways. He makes a lot of references to Old Testament uh, people. He makes references, not by name necessarily, but certainly alludes to their stories uh, in talking about Abraham and Moses. These people are not, a, not, not only just pinnacles of faith in general, but these are people who proved their faith in the way that they sojourned in, in a land that wasn't their own. He even quotes from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah spoke to Judah, warning them about becoming these 
aliens. And then he spoke to them again when they were, in fact, these aliens in this foreign land. And he makes a lot of other references. But among those references, he references a specific time in David's life in which David was a foreigner, in which he was an alien. He is a refugee, one who is on the run. And he quotes directly from Psalm 34. And immediately following that quote, he references Psalm 56. And what's interesting is that both of those psalms, they are two of only 13 psalms that actually provide a historical context. You ever notice that? How before a psalm, it might have a little bit of something written above. There's 13 of them that kind of tell you about the historical context of that psalm, where it was that this takes place. The heading of Psalm 56 is when David was captured by the Philistines. Then in Psalm 34, it states that the backdrop is when David faked being crazy in in front of the king of the Philistines. And that historical context, both Psalm 56 and Psalm 34, is found in 1 Samuel 21. Again, if you're not already turned there, go ahead and look there. But before we start looking at this particular chapter, I think it's important to look back at how did we get here? So again, if David's supposed to be on the run in this chapter, how in the world did he get there? Well, we can back up. You can start skimming through your Bible in chapter 17. And if you're just looking at headings in 1 Samuel chapter 17, you you, you come across a pretty uh, recognizable heading there, right? One that I think people even in the world would know. The story of David and Goliath. The story of David and Goliath has become so famous, really, it's just, it's something that every sports writer feels feels as though they have to make reference to, even if they don't actually know what they're referencing. But man, it was a real uh, underdog story. It was a real David and Goliath story. But this is, this is a very important story. This is not just a children's story. This is a story about David displaying his faith in God. He says in 1 Samuel 17, verse 37, The Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, and he will deliver me from the hand of the Philistines. You see great faith on the part of David. And you see great faithfulness on the part of God because he delivers David through rather unconventional means. He delivers them through, uh, him through a slingshot and some, and some stones. And then in 1 Samuel 18, things, uh, things are even better. Now you have, you got all the women in Israel singing all these great songs about David and how great he is and how he's even better than Saul. He's even better than the king. Well, you all know this story. This makes Saul pretty jealous. This makes Saul pretty upset. Uh, to the point when David returns, he is, he's now fearing for his own life because Saul now wants to kill him. And that brings us to 1 Samuel 21. David is on the run from Saul. But before we get right into that story, to bring us back to this exile imagery that Peter is trying to create, David is now in exile. David is now on the run. However, rather than proving his faith through his trials, to use the language of 1 Peter 1, David relies on his own wit to save himself. He relies on his own understanding to preserve his life. And as he does so, and as we read in 1 Samuel 21, what we see is a series of mistakes on David's part. Look at 1 Samuel 21, beginning in verse 1 with me. It says, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? David said to Ahimelech the priest, "Uh, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you. 
and with which I have commissioned you. And I have directed the, the young men to a certain place. The first thing that David does while he's on the run trying to preserve his life is he didn't want this priest to know exactly why he was there. And he straight up lies to him. He just says, yeah, I'm on some secret mission from the king. And then that continues. David, uh, apparently he's hungry. He starts talking to Ahimelech, asking for some food. And David uh, then takes food from the priest. And it's interesting because if you look at Matthew 12 and verse 4, Jesus makes direct reference to this, to this exact story. And we won't get into the context of what he's actually talking about there and what Jesus is trying to say. But one thing he does make clear is that David disobeyed God's law in doing this. So in his distress, he has now used his own wit to save him by lying, by disobeying God's law. And then he continues that lie even more. If you look at verse 8, um, he says that he left so quickly. I forgot, I forgot a sword. He asked Ahimelech for a sword. I, I, I forgot one. And Ahimelech provides him a sword. And it just so happens to be the sword of Goliath. And I imagine David's eyes getting real big here as he sees this sword. The very sword that he cut the head off of Goliath with. And he says that there is none like it. Give it to me. I think what we see here is David putting some sort of special trust in the sword. Maybe, maybe he's even putting special trust in the sword of Goliath, as if this, as if this thing is going to be the thing that delivers me out of this situation. And then with that sword in hand, in verse 10, David runs again. This time he runs to the king of the Philistines, in verse 10. Now, uh, he runs to Ashish, or uh, Abimelech, as Psalm 34 Calls him. Now, I want to pause and just say uh, that there seems to be an, there's an apparent discrepancy between these. 1 Samuel 21 says Ashish. Psalm 34 says, um, says Abimelech. Just to clarify that, Abimelech is more like a title, like Pharaoh uh, or like Caesar, something that would have been passed down, something along those lines. I think that explains uh, the discrepancy between the two. So David, now distressed by various trials, again, to use the language of 1 Peter 1, he lies, he violates God's law, he trusts in the sword of Goliath, and now he is seeking refuge in the Philistines. And who are the Philistines? They're the enemies of God's people. Of the enemy, the people that God was constantly at war with, the people who taunted the armies of the Lord. David must hope in them. And of course, help doesn't come. The servants of Ashish remind him, Hey, can you remember this guy? Yeah, he, he was the same guy who killed Goliath. He was the same guy that all those women of Israel were singing songs about. So David hears of this, and now he's afraid. And he's afraid for his life once again. And now, at his total wit's end, at the end of 1 Samuel 21, you get this ridiculous picture of David acting like a crazy person. He fakes madness before the king. This is the part that my kids love so much. It says that he's drooling so much that it's like coming down his beard. He's scratching and scribbling at the walls. I mean, you see, you see a man who is in just total desperation mode, who's at his total wit's end and can't think of anything else to do. Can you relate to David in this story? Maybe not the acting like a crazy person and having drool down your face. But can you relate to David in this? Have you ever felt threatened? 
Like your backs are against the wall in some way? I certainly can. I can think of situations where I felt as though my back was against the wall, even if it wasn't actually. I think we can all relate to David in this situation. Have you ever lied to get yourself out of trouble? Are you in the middle of a lie right now, perhaps, to help preserve yourself in some way? I want you to notice what David's lie did for him. As it always does, one lie demanded another lie, right? It wasn't enough just to tell the one. In order to back that up, he had to continue lying. And then if we had time, we could look into 1 Samuel 22 and you would really see the true extent of David's lie. What happens to the people of Nob because of the lie that he told the priest? The city's destroyed because of David. Now, also because of the insanity of Saul. But at the same time, that never would have happened had David not lied. We can't see the full scope of what our sin does to other people around us. Have you ever tried to justify disobeying God's law in the name of self-preservation? Some people are in some pretty dire circumstances. So self-preservation might be a pretty literal thing for some people. But I'm going to guess, for the majority of people here, when I say the word self-preservation, I mean this more figuratively. Like we feel as though we need to preserve something within ourselves. Be that our image, this reputation that I've created at work that I have to maintain by all means, this status that I have within this church that I have to maintain, by all means, uh, I got to keep my job, and maybe that means me disobeying God's law. I have to preserve my happiness, after all. That's what God really wants in my life. And so I'm going to do whatever I need to do to make sure that that happens. We sometimes justify going against God's word to preserve these very things. But maybe it's not even that we're just disobeying God's word, per se. Maybe it's something that's kind of on the line where you could make an argument that it's not actually against God's law or not. I'm not here to argue that necessarily, whatever it is that you're thinking in your head, but I want you to ask yourself, when you are in a situation where you're asking, is this really what God wants me to do? Ask yourself, am I making that decision based on wanting to please God, or am I making that decision based on self-preservation? And that takes some honesty, that takes some humility to do, but that's something that we must be willing to do. Have you ever trusted in worldly solutions to problems like David seems to be doing with the sword of Goliath? Maybe trusting in, in, in violence, be that physical or, or, or verbal to help solve problems. Maybe that's diligently serping, uh, searching for loopholes and tax laws to, to help us with our, our finances. Maybe that's trusting in the government and actively pushing plans of one person or party that can only be solved in the heart? Are we trusting in worldly solutions to these problems? Have you ever run to worldly people to help solve spiritual problems? Now, I'm not saying that worldly people can't make for good financial advisors or therapists or coaches or things along those lines. I'm sure you can all think of someone in the world that has been helpful to you. But ask yourself, the people that you go to for advice, are they people who trust in the Lord? Are they people who are devoted to God and His law? Because David had a real enemy in his life. He had Saul. Saul was a real problem for him. But it seems as though David is just running to, to whoever can solve his most immediate problem. All the while disregarding the fact that the Philistines, 
might be a little angry over the fact that he killed Goliath. Might be a little angry over the fact that he just killed thousands of, of, of their people. Did you not think of that, David? Now, David is thinking of the most immediate thing in him, but also disregarding the fact that he has just run to people who have absolutely no interest in the things that God cares about. These are people who have no interest in honor, no interest in compassion, no interest in mercy, the things that David desperately needs in this situation. Who are we running to for help? I believe we can all see ourselves in this story. But this brings us to the end of, of 1 Samuel 21, where I believe is when Psalm 56 and Psalm 34 take place. And I'll go ahead, I'll have Psalm 56 on the board, but feel free to turn there if you'd like. Oh, that's really small. Yeah, go ahead and turn there, man. Psalm 56 tells us uh, that this, this happens when David was taken by the Philistines in Gath. Now, I, I don't think this means that David is writing this psalm when he is in some Philistine holding cell. I, it may be, but I think it's more that he's, he's writing this after the fact, but putting himself mentally back in that place. And he writes from that perspective. Psalm 56 reflects on this time immediately following David's final act of desperation, but before he has been set free. And so now that David has, has expressed his total wits in, he pauses and he cries out to God for help. And he reflects on God's goodness. But he does this first by expressing trials in his life. He says in verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. Down in verse 5, All day long they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited to take my life. Do you see that repeated phrase? Verse 1, verse 2, verse 5. All day long he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long. All day long they distort my words. You get the sense that this is not just a one-time thing for David. And think about the struggles in your own life. Does it just come and go like that? Or is it repeatedly over and over? The anxiety of constantly having to look over his shoulder in preservation for his own life is exhausting for David. And this would be true if he was just referring to Saul, but now he has made things worse. Now he feels the same threat of the Philistines. But even in the midst of these great trials, I think it's important to see that now in this sober thought, David is able to think and reflect on God's goodness. Look with me in verse 8. It says, You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. I love the imagery of verse 8. I love that metaphor that he brings out. God is so aware of David's struggles. It's as if he has, he has kept every single tear that he has cried in a bottle. And it's as if he has written down every single struggle that David has been through in his book. Folks, that is a loving and personal and intimate God that we serve. And then perhaps because of these sober realizations of God, David then makes declarations. Beginning in verse 3, he says, When I am afraid, 
I will put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? And look over at verse 11. In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Another repeated phrase. What can man do to me? This word man is translated flesh in other, in other translations of the Bible. Maybe yours says flesh there. I like that thought too. What can, the, what can flesh do to me? In one sense, you can read this as David has these enemies all over him, but he starts reflecting, he starts thinking about God's goodness, and he knows, man, when I am in the arms of the Lord, what can man do to me? And I think that's a good way to look at it. However, I do want to propose an alternative way to look at this verse. The prepositional phrase that's translated to me, and I'm afraid I just lost about 75% of the audience there. Um, sorry, ex-English teacher. When you look at the prepositional phrase there, and you look at it in Hebrew, there's no preposition there. Because, well, Hebrew doesn't have prepositions. And so we naturally insert a preposition because it wouldn't make any sense in, in English. And so that word to is just kind of inserted in there. Now again, I think that makes sense within the context. However, I also think you can look at this, and I don't think it's too much of a stretch to read it as, what can man or what can flesh do for me? I mean, think about it. To this point, David has been relying on his own wit and his own craftiness to solve all of his problems. And I, it seems as though as he sits there waiting for his judgment from the Philistines, he realizes, man, what has the flesh done for me? except dig a deeper hole that I'm already in. What has the flesh done for me? And then he says in verse 13, For you have delivered my soul from death. It wasn't David's own wit that saved him. It wasn't David's own ingenuity and his own thoughts and his own understanding. It was God. And I imagine David reflecting back on his showdown with Goliath and thinking to himself while he's sitting here in this cell, it's God that delivered me from Goliath. It was God that delivered me from the bear and from the lion. And Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 3 and verse 13. I believe a direct reference to Psalm 56. He says, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? So as we consider our own reactions to our difficulties in life, let us consider, what can man do for me? What can the flesh do for me? Now let's look at Psalm 34. You can go ahead and turn there. I won't have the entire psalm on there. Otherwise, we really wouldn't be able to read it. But the heading here in Psalm 34, again, as you remember from, from earlier, is the same historical context. It's David after David faked madness before the king. And while Psalm 56 does speak in confidence that God will deliver him, Psalm 34 speaks in a different tone, a more triumphant tone, as God has delivered him. Perhaps a reference to Psalm 56, Psalm 34 and verse 4 says, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And while the psalm does, it has a lot of the same topics as Psalm 56, he approaches them with a slightly different Tone. He lays out his difficulties just like he had done before in Psalm 56, except 
Except instead of speaking personally, it seems as though he's, he's speaking to a larger audience. He speaks more generally here. He talks about the poor man crying out, the righteous crying out, the brokenhearted, the crushed in spirit, those who are afflicted. However, this time around, he dwells far less on these trials and these difficulties. He mentions the difficulties, but in the line immediately following each of them, he reflects on God's goodness. He says, the Lord heard me and saved him, or heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near and saves. The Lord delivers him out of them all. He immediately goes to God's goodness and how God delivers. And then in the rest of the psalm, you see a lot of blue up there. He's constantly coming back to God's goodness and just how great God has been in his life. And why does he reflect so much on God's goodness? Because he has tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Something Peter makes reference to in 1 Peter 2 and verse 3. And then because of the recognition of God's goodness, he makes these similar declarations like he had done in Psalm 56. It says in verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. If you remember in Psalm 56, the enemies were pressing on him at all times. He repeated that three different times. But what does he say here in verse 1? I will bless the Lord at all times. He's able to say this out of his struggles and out of his trials. The fact that God had delivered them, him from all of these. Now keep in mind again that historical context of Psalm 56 and Psalm 34. 1 Samuel 21. If you look back at 1 Samuel 21, you remember at the end of that, uh, I love, I love uh, the king of the Philistines' reaction uh, to David. He's like, look, I got enough crazy people here. I don't, I, don't, I don't need any more. And he lets them go. Well, then in 1 Samuel 22, the beginning of 1 Samuel 22, beginning of verse 1, he says, So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, and everyone who is discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. Again, the context of Psalm 34 is immediately following this time with the Philistines. And it's interesting the description that is given to these people who are now around David in 1 Samuel 22 and verse 2, those who are in distress, in debt, and discontented. Now, I can't prove this, but Psalm 34 seems to be speaking much more generally. We looked at that before. It seems as though he's not just looking internally, but he's speaking to other people. And this seems much more clear if you look at verses 11 through 14. He seems to zero in on his audience. And he looks at them and he says, come, you children, listen to me. Who is that group that's surrounded around him? But it's all of those who are distressed, indebted, discontented, and just these generally disgruntled people. And as David has them around him, he gives them some advice. And he tells them, I will teach you the fear of the Lord, who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil. 
and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Look, you want to know what, is, what it means to actually fear the Lord? Here's what you should do. You should keep your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from speaking deceit. Run away from evil. Start doing good. Seek peace. Essentially what he's telling them is, you don't do what I did. Remember David's mistakes from 1 Samuel 21? It's as if David is telling them, look, I spoke evil. I lied. I faked madness before the king. I did not speak what is true. And I didn't depart from evil. I ran straight to evil. And I didn't do good. I ignored the one who is good. I ignored God's law. And I didn't seek peace. I sought a sword. I trusted in the sword of Goliath. Truly trusting in God means not trusting in the things of the world. And there's a whole lot of things of this world that are really easy to lean on. He says in verse 19 of Psalm 34, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. So trusting in God doesn't mean that you're going to be without trials. But David's conclusion was, But the Lord delivers him out of them all. So we think to ourselves, What can man do for me? As we wrap up, Peter quotes this very text in Psalm 34, specifically uh, verses 12 through 14. He quotes that in 1 Peter 3. And like Peter's audience, we too, again, should see ourselves as these refugees in some way, as these sojourners, immigrants, People who have these great difficulties in life but are rising above them. And I'm sure many who are reading the letter that Peter is sending them felt like that band of soldiers that surrounded David. They felt distressed. They felt indebted and discontent. And I'm sure there are many who feel that way tonight. Or at least can reflect on a time when they had. It's understandable to feel that way. It's expected even in some respects. However, how will we respond in those difficult Times, Will we seek our own deliverance as David did in 1 Samuel 21? Or will we lean from his, or learn from his example and begin with his conclusion? What can man do for me? If you are in a place in your life uh, where you're struggling making decisions, you feel like every single one that you make leads you somewhere else, I invite you to understand God better. Try to understand His Word, because man isn't going to help you. Just my words alone aren't going to help you, only if I'm speaking the words of God. Now, the way that you're going to find true help is through Jesus. And it's my mistake that we haven't talked much about Him tonight. But Jesus is the way to find that true path in life. A life that does not lead you into these paths. Jesus is where true life is found. If you're not a Christian... Only life can be found in Him, but you can become one. You can be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. But maybe, I feel as though on a Sunday afternoon, I'm probably speaking to people who are Christians, a lot of you, who are maybe, maybe struggling in your life to try and, try and figure these things out. You know what God has done. Reflect on that more. And maybe you're at a point where you really need to repent, and you need to talk to other people about that. If you want to make that public, that can be done. But... I invite you, as we sing this song, meditate on these things. Meditate what you need to do differently in your life. And make a change. May, us all, may all of us be able to reflect on that. If you have any need of this invitation, please come up while we stand and sing.